I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, we look at forecasts for bird migration through the Colorado State University BirdCast team. You know, we're not asking folks to turn off their lights or turn off their wind turbines for 90 straight days, right? Maybe that would be great, but we're also understanding that there's, there's different priorities here as well. So if we can say 50% of birds migrate through on 10 nights in spring and 10 nights in fall, then we would want to prioritize some protective measure on those specific nights. If you look up at the sky during the day, you're likely to see flocks of geese and other large birds flying south. Smaller birds mostly travel at night, and sometimes it's almost a billion of them flying across the U.S. in just one night. You can track these amazing travels through an online bird migration website called BirdCast. BirdCast even lets you see online what birds to look for around your home during migration. Plus, BirdCast has a Lights Out program to help you know on what days to turn out lights to help migrating birds fly over your area without confusion at night. The BirdCast forecasts are created by a collaboration that includes the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and Colorado State University. Here's more from BirdCast developer and scientist, CSU professor Kyle Horton. What's the number of birds that'll be migrating over Colorado or the U.S. or any specific county across the United States? These forecasts fall under an umbrella of a project we call BirdCast. It's a site for really all things migratory birds. If you want to know where they're flying or which species might be flying, we integrate radar data, we integrate things like eBird community science data to deliver products back to the public, to re-excite them about birds or get them excited to go birdwatching the next day. Today we're up in Fort Collins at CSU in an old-fashioned blonde brick building with the name Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. We're in Kyle Horton's Aero Eco Lab. Researchers here have regular computers. They're studying anything that migrates in the air, so birds, bats, and insects. They do this using radar, acoustics, and community science data that includes bird identification from the Merlin smartphone app, and also data from bird banding. For more, here's Kyle Horton. There's been a history of, of tools that we can use to study migratory birds, and one of those first tools was really bird banding, the capture of a bird, putting some identifiable unit on its leg usually, and then seeing where that bird might be recaptured somewhere else or if it comes back to your backyard the next year. Folks have been banding birds for hundreds of years now. Millions of birds have been banded. And they give really good information about the species and the age and the sex of the birds, wing length, lots of measurements. But as technology has evolved, we've used other tools. For instance, what my lab uses is radar data. So weather surveillance radars are used to capture the movements of birds at broad scales. Most birds migrate at night, so you can't look up and see them. But it turns out that the radar that tracks raindrops also tracks flying animals. How did the world develop these radars? Cal Horton says their original purpose was to track German bombers in World War II. Radar, the technology radar, its history you know, spans about 75, 80 years now. Radars that we use, they were designed to detect aircraft movements in terms of a military capacity, but then these odd things, birds, they're showing up on these radars. And it wasn't obvious what the stuff was, the odd things, right? So they would actually ready aircraft to go intercept what they thought might be 
a bomber, for instance, they'd go up into the airspace and they wouldn't find any aircraft, right? Seeing a bird didn't make the connection immediately. They actually hired ornithologists during World War II to actually investigate this because there started to be evidence that maybe this detecting they're sensitive enough to detect things like large birds. Most of the first radars were put on the coastlines of England trying to see German bombers. There were a lot of seabirds that were in that area, and the birds that they started detecting were actually these large birds called gannets. And that species is the first known identity of a bird showing up on radars is from gannets. That doesn't <laughs> look like a bomber from Germany. Yeah, right. Considerably smaller than an aircraft flying across the English Channel, but these radars are quite sensitive. They started getting detections from rain droplets, for instance, which are even considerably smaller than a gannet versus a bomber. The radars weren't developed to detect birds or meteorological phenomena like rain droplets from a thunderstorm, for instance. And those are some of the dominant applications now. The radars that we use are designed for detecting weather phenomena like precipitation, but still detect a lot of birds as well. CSU birdcast scientist Kyle Horton says that hundreds of millions of small birds migrate at night. Many of them fly perilous journeys that include flying over the Gulf of Mexico. The first study on migratory birds and radar came out in 1945. In the U.S., one of the pioneering uh, researchers is, is Dr. Sid Gotro. He worked extensively in the Gulf of Mexico region, trying to reveal mysteries of birds crossing the Gulf of Mexico. There was always this question of, can a small songbird that might weigh 10 grams, 20 grams, leave from the Yucatan Peninsula and fly for 24 hours to cross the Gulf of Mexico? Hummingbirds are even smaller than the songbirds, right? They might weigh two to three grams, and you think about these small birds being able to fly a thousand miles, for instance, and cross the Gulf of Mexico, going from the coast of Louisiana to Mexico, for instance, in one flight is just astonishing in terms of how energetically efficient they are to do such a long distance flight. And that really opened our eyes about what are the possibilities of bird migration. There's still, even today, so much that we don't know about migratory birds. We don't know how small birds make it over the Gulf of Mexico. We don't entirely know how any bird migrates at night, though it seems to involve orienting with the stars. Here's birdcast scientist Kyle Horton. Birds are primarily migrating at night. As we sleep at night, those birds are taking on these large, long, extensive flights they show up the next day and they start foraging and rebuilding their energy for that that next flight. You know, there might be a Baltimore Oriole showing up one day on the east coast of the U.S. or a black-headed grosbeak on the western half of the U.S. We really never know exactly what's going to show up, right? There might be 10 migratory birds in my backyard, but on the scale of Colorado or the U.S., we're talking about tens of millions of birds sometimes or hundreds of millions of birds moving. It's just hard to comprehend those scales, and that's quite exciting. If you want to watch what's happening with bird migration, go to the website BirdCast. You can see predictions about what to expect to be flying over your home tonight. The BirdCast maps have clear explanations, and they're easy to follow. But they start with raw data from confusing radar maps. That leads to my next question for Kyle Horton, sitting at his computer at the CSU Aero Eco Lab. What is this map that you're showing of the United States with little blips and blocks on it? This map here is a live rendering of the NEXRAD weather surveillance radar data. 
There's 143 radar installations in the lower 48 of the U.S. They collect data every five and 10 minutes. So the data that we're looking at span about the last 30 minutes. So in this part of the map, we can see some pretty heavy uh, rainfall in parts of Texas and Oklahoma. We can see this, this light blue color here, and that's probably insects moving through the airspace. Tell me more about that. Where do you think the bugs are? Yeah, sure. On this map, high-intensity reflection is, is sort of denoted by these reds, oranges, and yellows. And then some of this lighter blue here in this region, in Texas and Oklahoma, it's not really strong reflectivity. That's the measure we're looking at here. These are sort of telltale signs of daytime insects migrating through the airspaces. How do you know they're bugs and not <laughs> birds? Most of the activity for migratory birds is going to be at night. So when we come into periods when the sun is setting, we're going to see really strong activity. Insects are going to start migrating during the day. They're going to be riding thermals up into the airspace. And we just don't get a lot of really strong signal as we would from migratory birds. Again, it's never ultimately definitive of what's in the airspace. This is why we need things like bird banding, for instance, to corroborate what might be up in the airspace on a given day or a given night. The radars themselves don't tell us explicitly which species, or even sometimes broadly, the taxa. Um, what is a taxa? Yeah, sure. Birds versus bats versus insects, for instance. When you look at that soft, cloudy plume of what you have determined, <laughs> or hypothesize are insects, how many do you think there are? The data product that we're looking at on this map is known as radar reflectivity. It's a measure of intensity. Some of that, that stuff that's up in this airspace uh, could be birds, it could be insects. In this case, it's probably primarily insects. And when we're talking about the numerous number of insects, we're talking probably about hundreds of millions of insects in the airspaces across these broad scales. Can you? focus in with your radar and say it was a grasshopper. Sometimes there's signals that we can see bats coming out of a cave, for instance, right? That's really clear signal. It's diagnostic. And we can go to that cave and say the stuff coming out of this cave is primarily Mexican free-tailed bats, for instance. Um, we see this emergence of biological activity out of you know, the Mississippi River. And we might be able to say, okay, that was a mayfly emergence coming out of these aquatic habitats. So it might not be 100% one specific species, but we, we pull together the data that we do have, usually from the ground, sometimes from aerial trapping, for instance, for insects. But the radar itself never explicitly says this is Mexican free-tailed bats or this is yellow warbler, for instance. Is there artificial intelligence involved? We now have tools to separate in an automated way precipitation versus biology. We have other tools to actually make forecasts to try to make predictions of what might be happening tonight, tomorrow, the night after, for instance. Kyle Horton says that compared with the rest of the world, U.S. weather radar makes this doable. Under the umbrella of the U.S. government, we have this unified radar network known as NEXRAD. So every radar uh, that we use is the same radar. There's slight modifications, but more or less they're the same radar. That's not true as you go to other parts of the world. Doing some of the work that we do is more challenging in Europe, for instance, right? Because there's a lot of countries. Each country operates their own radar network. There might be different radars. There might be different data access. Some countries have the radars. They use them for the detection of weather phenomena. 
they can detect the biological phenomena, but it's clutter and it's immediately removed and it's not archived, for instance. That's not the case in the US, right? So all of the raw data are archived with the good and the bad. Um, for me, the bad is the precipitation, the good is the birds, the bats, the insects. You know, you just helped me realize that when I see a weather report on TV, they never say, pay no attention to that fuzzy blur that's just bugs. Yep. They took it out. They took it out, yeah. We basically do the inverse of what meteorologists do. We remove the precipitation and maintain the biology, and they are working really hard to do the opposite of what we do. They remove the biology, the birds, bats, and insects, and maintain the precipitation because that's their deployment, their application for the radars. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're talking about how to forecast bird migration through a CSU innovation that you can look at online called BirdCast. Most birds migrate at night using natural light from things like stars to help them navigate. BirdCast scientists are helping to document the importance of turning lights out at night to help those birds navigate. They're also documenting bird habitat around crucial areas for bird migration. For more on that, let's go to the desk of another scientist at CSU's Aero Ecolab. The image at this scientist's computer shows a blurry radar circle of bluish dots. It's thousands of songbirds flying over the Gulf of Mexico. Here's more from CSU bird scientist Annika Abbott. I study bird migration in the Gulf of Mexico region using radar data. This is a really important migratory bottleneck for birds. A lot of them will pass through the Gulf region and actually make nonstop flights over the, the Gulf of Mexico. So they'll take off a little after sunset, they fly all through the night, and then at some point over the course of the next day, they make landfall. And this is like an up to 24 hour flight, which is pretty impressive considering that these birds are very small, little songbirds, and yet they're taking on these extremely hard and long journeys. Ruby-throated hummingbirds, specifically on the East Coast, are known to make migrations across the Gulf of Mexico. What we're looking at here is the Houston, Texas radar station from around sunrise to sunset during spring migration. All of the little dark blue pixels here, greenish, light blue, are migrating birds. These are birds that have crossed the Gulf of Mexico. The lighter blue is less intense migration and the dark blues and greens are more intense migration. So all of this speckledy stuff, it's not individual birds, but it's the radar picking up birds flying and it's density estimates of migration. How many birds do you think are in that cluster? <sighs> That's tough to say. It's usually on a logarithmic scale, so it's not really something that you can make good sense of. Are you telling me that you can't really tell whether this is 100,000 birds or 50,000 birds? You can with some algorithms. We just like haven't looked at it specifically in this context. How many birds are you guessing that is? A lot. It would be in the hundreds of thousands, most likely. Small songbirds, so things like warblers, thrushes. We're not looking here at ducks or geese. It would be primarily songbirds that are making these crossings. Do all of them make it? Definitely not. If there are big storms out over the Gulf, a lot of them won't make it. There's actually been studies that they've found migratory birds in the stomachs of sharks. Um, like they fall into the water and then get eaten. It's definitely a very difficult journey and that's why the Gulf Coast is so important to preserve a stopover habitat because you have really high numbers of birds 
that need to rest following these long journeys so they can continue their migrations further north. The 100-plus weather radars across the U.S. can't tell what kind of bird is flying through the skies during fall migration, but another radar can. And it's here, in CSU's Aero Ecolab. For more about this special radar, here's another BirdCast scientist. My name is Miko Jimenez. Miko Jimenez points to a square metal box. Yeah, we kind of joke it looks like a fridge sometimes. <laughs> it looks like a mini fridge, right? Yeah, I was thinking that it looked like a instant pot. I can see that too. Jimenez says this clunky looking radar does something amazing. There's a number of these being deployed across Europe um, and you know, that's kind of a cool part of working with this, this machine is that I get to be part of this kind of global community of folks that are using radar to study wildlife. For example, there's a group that just published um, a paper using this machine to look at bats specifically, um, and they published essentially a program that allows them to take the data and um, uh, you know, classify what echoes are actually bats. I don't know of too many people using it specifically on insects. I know that there are folks that are doing that. I, I'm not super well versed in the details of what their research questions are, though. Now, if I were designing this, I would have a computer app that goes with it that as birds are flying over bugs, it goes kabing and shows me which one it is. That's essentially what we have. Uh, so I don't know if we have any footage of us out in the field, but actually this exact team for the past two years has been going out um, and we hook this up to a monitor it's running um, and then we can look on the monitor and literally see in real time what birds are flying over us um, so it it's is like yeah and i guess it is kind of like pokemon in real life you know i think all of us in this lab kind of know this whole history of how radar ornithology has slowly come to be and i don't think even in their wildest dreams some of the early folks who were using radar you know, would have been able to think about using this like at this resolution in real time. So it's a really cool product to be using and to just know the whole history of how we got here. It's able to actually distinguish insects from birds. And then even within uh, this bird classification, it can tell us about different types of birds that we're seeing. So waders or songbirds or um, swift types. And we can actually see what's flying above us in real time. So we're getting these measures of how many birds are flying over, you know, how many insects are flying over, at what altitudes they're flying. Um, and we can use this to test some different assumptions about what we know about the, at the relationships between atmospheric conditions and uh, how birds and other wildlife is using the, the atmosphere as habitat. Miko Jimenez says bird populations in North America have declined by 30% over the last 50 years. One of the times birds die the most is during migration. Migration as a whole is a really big source of mortality. Most smaller birds migrate at night, orienting themselves with things like starlight. One of the biggest causes of migration mortality is light pollution, meaning bright lights coming from homes and cities at night. A lot of birds are really drawn to cities because of their really bright sources of, I guess, light on the landscape. Oftentimes they'll be drawn into these urban areas where they're more likely to collide with you know, human-built structures, higher rates of predation often by predators. Um, and so this serves as a pretty big source of mortality as birds migrate across the continent. To help people help birds, BirdCast has a program called Lights Out. It's a way to urge people to turn out lights at night during times when lots of migrating birds are flying over their area. Here's more from Miko Jimenez. There are different ways that we can take action to prevent some of that. 
One really big way that we focus on in our lab is uh, turning off lights during those peak nights of migration. Um, and the hope there is that if we turn off those lights, that birds won't be drawn to these urban centers and hopefully you know, not face as many of those threats as they might otherwise. Now let's go back to the lead person at the Aero Eco Lab located at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. He's a key to the BirdCast website that you can see yourself on your computer. This scientist is Kyle Horton. He's concerned about bird population declines, big declines. Bird populations have been on a decline for probably the last 50 or so years with an estimated loss of about 3 billion breeding birds in North America. We can see the declines just from historical benchmarks. There's lots of estimates out there, but we have a good sense of probably around a 30% decline, right? So maybe there are 12 billion, we lost 3 billion breeding birds. Kyle Horton says we need better understanding and greater public awareness about the nationwide decline of migrating birds. That's a reason he and his team do daily birdcast forecasts. And it's an effort that's taken a long time to craft. You know, birdcast used to be a lot of manual effort. Folks would stay up all night or they'd wake up very early to make a forecast. It might be a manually typed out forecast. We'd look at weather maps and say, you know, from our best judgment, this area should be good for bird watching. That's, you know, in the rear view now. We have algorithms, we have pipelines that automatically create forecasts four times a day. Um, so that allows myself and all my colleagues to sleep at night, wake up, see what the forecast showed us. And there's a lot more on the horizon of, of what we can do with that. Our dream is that we unify all of these technologies, radar and acoustics and community science. As we add more technology, we bring more people into understanding and appreciating migration. You know, share this excitement with the public broadly, not just in the U.S. or in North America, uh, but all around the world. We've got, you know, grassland birds that are breeding uh, in agricultural fields, right? And we know broadly, you know, when they make their nest and lay their eggs, it's going to take this long for the fledglings to pop out of that nest and sort of be independent of that location. Um, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, these birds migrate 2,000 kilometers, they get to this field, they, they set up shop, they, you know, lay eggs, they have nestlings, and then the field is, is harvested, right? So maybe waiting a few days. Um, and that's just a lot of communication, a lot of conversations that can happen on the ground to make sure that, okay, um, what's, what's the bang for your buck of harvesting two days later? Uh, and those are, those are sometimes challenging conversations, but they can have big impacts on, for instance, our grassland species, which at least in North America are, are some of the, the hardest hit in terms of population declines. Um, or the spraying of pesticides to reduce those pests. Sometimes we can have natural predators of those pests like a tree swallow or a purple martin or a Mexican free-tailed bat. Um, sometimes those pesticides can ripple through an ecosystem and have negative effects, not just on the insects, but things foraging on those insects as well. Horton says all this data can help with things like where to put a wind farm. We think about airspaces as critical habitats for migratory birds. The birds aren't migrating necessarily through, you know, lakes or ponds or the trees, right? They're moving through, they're migrating through airspaces. Either the birds are migrating through something that we don't consider a habitat or we need to consider airspace as a habitat to allow them to get to their breeding destination, to their non-breeding destination, they have to move through airspaces. 
you know, so we can use these data to try to prioritize areas that there might be high wind profit for a wind turbine, but not many birds fly through. Or if many birds fly through, when do they fly through? Which days of the year are they flying through? What periods of the night are they flying through? Um, so we have tools that we can bring to bear to try to um, both give the benefits of, of a green energy source like wind turbines, but also try to mitigate uh, threats to those wildlife. Kyle Horton says the BirdCast team is looking for win-win solutions for helping birds survive, especially during migration. That's the goal of a BirdCast program known as Lights Out. You know, we're not asking folks to turn off their lights or turn off their wind turbines for 90 straight days, right? Maybe that would be great, but we're also understanding that there's, there's different priorities here as well. So if we can say 50% of birds migrate through on 10 nights in spring and 10 nights in fall, then we would want to prioritize some protective measure on those specific nights. Whether that's turning off lights or halting a wind turbine, um, those are some of the practices that we envision. The benefit of all this is that to say, you know, May 1st is often high migration, but it's not always high migration, right? And what we can do is, is predict the migration on May 1st 2023 or 2024 or a decade from now. We have the tools now to make those predictions of this is one of the big nights. This is one of those 10 big nights per season, per area. And those are some of the things that we're working towards. Colorado State University professor Kyle Horton is a leader of BirdCast. It's an online bird migration program it includes a lights out campaign to encourage people to turn out their lights at night during peaks of bird migration. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from local naturalist Steve Jones. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to topics we've talked about today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>